Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by John Sindelar, and I'm excited to have you on, John, because of many reasons. We've worked on a lot of projects together after Salt Lake. And uh, you're always one of the nicest, kindest people that I've I've ever worked with. And so I'm very, very happy that you accepted the invitation to come on this crazy little podcast. So, John, welcome. Thank you. How are you doing? Good, good. That's very kind of you, by the way. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Uh, really, uh, uh, what you're doing is a pretty cool project. Uh, I'm impressed with it. So uh, thanks for letting me be a part of it. And um um, glad for the opportunity to contribute my my little piece of the pie to the uh, to the grand scheme. Well, the other unusual thing that we have in common, John, is that we share the same dentist. That's right. <laughs> yes. So I don't know if there are any other slot people out there that have the same dentist that we do. But that was funny when we found that out that we actually have the same dentist. Right. And uh, and it's great to have you on because you are always smiling. Your default facial expression is a smile. And uh, every time I'm around you, I just I just feel happy inside. So thanks for coming on. Oh, that's kind. That's kind. Thank you. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're joining us from, what you're doing these days, a little bit about yourself, John. Uh, well, I'm uh, mostly retired now. Um, I, my wife recently retired. Uh, she worked for 32 years for the Salt Lake Convention and Visitors Bureau, uh, now Visit Salt Lake. Uh, we live here in the southeast uh, corner of the Salt Lake Valley, uh, somewhere not far from you, I think, since we're in the same neighborhood as our dentist. Uh, we've been here 34 years. Um, we now have an empty nest. The the four and nine year old kids that were uh, that were four and nine at games time are now have now grown up, uh, gone to college, moved away, gotten jobs, and they're in Colorado. Uh, so. Um, and I'm also helping my family with my uh, caring for my dad. Uh, he's 96 years old, and and I'm uh, caring for. I'm doing the financial piece of uh, of care, the stuff that I can do remotely. He's in St. Louis. I'm here in Salt Lake. So, um, but I'm still doing some periodic consulting, volunteering on um, future games, on advising future games and the accommodation uh, piece, the the part that I kind of stumbled into post games, which I can tell you more about later. Wow, well, that's pretty exciting. You've got a lot on your plate for a retired individual, <laughs> like. Well, you mentioned um, caring for your father remotely. What's the impact of COVID there on your family? You know, it's been a challenge for some of us. Well, some of us in this crazy industry that it's impacted our ability to do work and also the way we work. Uh, I'm curious about you. You know, uh, how have you been going through this whole? weird pandemic. Well, I'm looking forward to my second dose of the Moderna uh, vaccine this uh, this coming Saturday. So um, um, uh, we'll be set after that, a couple of weeks after that. Uh, we've kept the virus away from, uh, from my dad um, and he's on his second dose, I think next week. So, um, so we're, we're doing everything, we've done everything we can to to stay protected and out of circulation for a long time, and and now uh, going to the effort of making sure we were we were getting vaccinated too, so um, we're surviving. Well, I'm very happy to hear that you're getting vaccinated. I'm actually getting vaccinated at 11 o'clock this morning. Okay. I had to move this podcast up an hour because I, after we had initially scheduled it, I was looking for slots and that was the slot that was available. So I appreciate your flexibility so that I can go get a shot in the arm. Oh, yeah. Va vaccination takes place, uh, takes precedent over pretty much or priority over pretty much everything. So that was a good decision. My wife got hers yesterday and she's just got the Johnson and Johnson one and done oh. shot. But uh, yeah, uh -huh. I'm like, you. Yeah, I got to, I got to do the other one with the two shots, you know, so I'll get the first one tomorrow or no, the first one today. And then the second one yeah. in, in a few weeks from now. So we'll see how it goes. Uh -huh. All right. Well, before we dive into Salt Lake 2002, I want to ask my crazy marooned on an Island question. So 
let's assume that the COVID restrictions have lifted, you're able to travel. And if you're marooned on this island and you can have one meal, one uh, album, as as old folks would call it, and (laughs) one film uh, to watch, what would those three items be? Well, for the meal, uh, I'd uh, look forward to a a slow-cooked, fall-off-the-bone barbecue baby back ribs. Uh, That would be my my chosen meal. and uh, for a film, um, It's a Wonderful Life, the 1946 holiday classic with Jimmy Stewart playing George Bailey, uh, one of my favorites. And um, an album, I'm not as picky about the album. Uh, I'm a, um, a baby boomer, so anything classic rock would, uh, would please me. Okay, I got to go back to the food choice because I think ribs are excellent, but it's got to come with some sides. I mean, what are you going to have for the sides? And are you going to have some dessert and maybe an appetizer? I mean, or is it just all ribs all day long? Oh, some uh, some baked beans and coleslaw would would top it off just fine. All right, baked beans and coleslaw <laughs> with ribs. I think that's a great choice. I, I love I love ribs and I love barbecue, so that's awesome. That's awesome, and uh, and I'm a. I'm a classic rock, although I lean more progressive on the on the rock side. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, I actually had my son create a Spotify playlist for me a couple of weeks ago with important music from the 2010s because uh-huh. I have absolutely no idea what's current, and I just want to. I just want to stay a little relevant with my children. So (laughs) I'm trying to learn uh, to listen to some of the more modern music, but I'm with you. I'll stick with the, with the oldies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's go back in time. Jump in the way back machine to Salt Lake 2002. You mentioned you lived here for 34 years, but what were you doing before you joined the Salt Lake organizing committee? And just how did you find yourself working for SLOC? Well, I, I had been uh, with a hotel, um, with uh, uh, the Doubletree Hotel, Salt Lake City, on um, 2nd West and South Temple. It's now the Radisson Hotel. So uh, I had been there for about nine years, uh, most of the time with in the, as director of marketing, but the last couple of years as general manager. Um, and, and actually, my journey uh, to SLOC started there in that I signed the contract, uh, the hotel contract that was presented by the bid committee um, uh, on behalf of Doubletree. So that kind of got me started in the process. Um, then the following year in 1990, that was in 1994, in 1995, uh, my wife and I accompanied the group of supporters that went to Budapest and were there when the announcement was made uh, and Salt Lake was selected for 2002. And that was announced in Budapest in in 95. And in fact, on the way back on the airplane, a lot of the supporters uh, flew together in the same Delta aircraft that had been arranged. And um, um, I approached uh, Jay Johnson uh, on the plane and started um, uh, talking about uh, letting him know I was available and interested in employment with the organizing committee. So um, I, I took advantage of the opportunity that uh, and and actually having a chance to pigeonhole him on the aircraft uh, and uh, talked about it then. And then within the year or within about nine months or so with his support and Verena Rasmussen's support, um, I started at SLOC in March of 96 uh, as I, I was told somewhere along the way, I'm employee number 24. So um, I was one of the um, early arrivals uh, because accommodations is a front-loaded function and they needed some of the help right off the bat. Well, okay, that's really interesting story. Number one, uh, very, 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 very well done talking to Dave Johnson on the plane after you've won, right? Uh, He's in a great mood. Everybody's in a really awesome mood and they're they're returning. So uh, well done. Number two actually is a question, which was, how did you end up getting selected to go to Budapest? Because I'm, I'm sure that was something that a lot of people wanted to do, right? There are even people in the bid committee that didn't have an opportunity to go to Budapest. So, so how did you end up uh, scoring that one? I, they made an offer to the, some of the hotels, perhaps some of the hotel general managers, at least those that had signed. I, I, I'm supposing this is the way it came about. So as a uh, general manager of a hotel that had signed up, uh, at least that made us eligible and got an invite. And of course, we still had to pay for it, but um, uh, it um, 
that must have been how it came about. And what was your reaction when uh, Samaranch opens the envelope and says the city of Salt Lake City? Oh, of, of course, I uh, the there were uh, cameras there that uh, caught everybody jumping for joy. So we were among those jumping. So, yes, it was pretty exciting. All right. So you come in a few months after the victory. So in 1996 to run accommodations, uh, plural, as we say here in Salt Lake, uh, other places may have it singular. Exactly. That's a. I'm curious how we settled on this. Like, how? It, why is it that here it's accommodations and some other places it's accommodation singular? Yes, and I, I was uh, reminded by Lonnie Sullivan, my counterpart with Sydney. One point, at one point, she she was very pointed about about that when I was making a presentation, and she corrected me, or or vice versa. I, I can't remember the specifics, but. Uh, I, I do remember being corrected by Lonnie Sullivan, uh, the Sydney director of accommodations uh, on that point. Well, it's just funny. We, you know, in we have transportation and other committees call it transport and we called it catering and other people call it food and beverage. And we have accommodations, plural and accommodation singular. And I'm just I would just wonder how that all happened. Yeah. Don't know. But uh, there was bigger fish to fry for sure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's, that wasn't probably high on the priority list when you came on board. Let's see. Should we call it accommodation or accommodations? Hmm, I don't know. So let's talk about the priorities when you came on board. Give us a little bit of insight as to your role, the nature of it, and the, the big tasks or challenges that you saw when you first started working in accommodations in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Sure. Well, well, when I first got there, you know, I brought a hotel background uh, to the position, uh, uh, certainly an enthusiasm for the games, but I didn't have any Olympic or event experience. So, um, uh, and there was no manual, no instruction manual that uh, was available to guide me on how to do the the job. Um, so I had to basically, as my son would say, figure it out, uh, just figure it out. And, and fortunately, um, Slock uh, gave me an opportunity to go to the games in Atlanta just a few months later in, in uh, the summer of 96, and later on to Nagano, uh, Nagano in 98, and to Sydney in 2000, um, where I got a chance to uh, observe what they were doing, studied uh, their processes, met with uh, my counterparts and others associated with the process, and uh, eventually uh, figured it out, figured out a path that, that worked for, for uh, eventually worked for Salt Lake. And, and I developed a, a lens through which I was viewing uh, the accommodation function. And, um, and it kind of came down to, so much of what we were doing came down to a supply demand lens. Uh, that is uh, a very high demand event um, with limited supply of accommodation. And it, it, it was a flavor that went throughout, um, as opposed to say, um, if the organizing committee needed uh, a, a large print job done or a lot of print jobs done, they might uh, put out an RFP for um, a printing company and then choose the best one at the best price. But uh, uh, for accommodation, we not um, or accommodations, we not only needed uh, some of the hotels, but most or nearly all of the hotels. So it was a a different dynamic that um, impacted a lot of a lot of what we did, and in fact, it, it even the the structure of uh, my accommodation team. Uh, I had Rusty Martin overseeing the supply side, and Bob O'Neill overseeing the demand side, and um, and that helped. Uh, help the uh, beginnings of our team uh, in, in setting that, that up. The, um, and from the supply perspective, you, you know, we dealt with, um, we, ne we needed what became eventually about 19,000 rooms um, within a two hour radius of Salt Lake. And, and that represented uh, everything from the mom and pop hotels up to the five star hotels um, and the condominiums in Park City that, that dominate that sort of lodging style up there. And, um, and we also supplied some temporary housing, which uh, 
the organizing committee kind of got into the hotel business too, uh, which I'll tell you a little bit uh, more about later. But um, then on, on the demand side, we had the the groups that we had to take care of, the customer groups, which first began with the International Olympic Committee, the uh, International Sports Federations, the National Olymp- Olympic Committees of the countries uh, participating, the sponsors with the, their international, national, the official suppliers, uh, the the media, uh, which was one of the largest segments, including both press and broadcast. And then uh, the organizing committee's own accommodation needs, which included everybody from the bus drivers um, up to um, dignitaries. So um, we had a lot of people to take care of. And um, so continuing uh, looking, using this lens to kind of supply, demand, supply, demand, The we had to initially, when we got there, looked at the supply of our inventory. What rooms did we have? Um, and I saw that uh, the bid committee had... Uh, secured about 6,000 of the rooms toward that 19,000 that we would eventually need. Now that that was good, but we had a we needed a lot more than that. Uh, and it turned out some of those were condominiums that were signed off by the property manager, uh, property management uh, group that um, rented them out typically, but there was no uh, authorization by the owner of the units. And that became, uh, those those contracts were invalid all by themselves. Um, and then there was another chunk of rooms, about 11,000 rooms that were signed off on by the uh, head of the hotel association. Um, but they, they can't, um, they can't authorize a commitment of rooms really contractually, uh, the kind of con- contract that we needed um, uh, by the Hotel Trade Association. So that um, letter for 11,000 rooms was not much, was not valid either, uh, frankly. So we really had our work cutting out, cut out for us in building up the inventory that we needed. And the, um, it's especially considering that the games had already been awarded. Uh, we were past the point of bidding. We had been awarded the games and we still had to build up mo- um, two thirds of the room block. And uh, that was one of our big challenges. Um, then at the same time we were building up the inventory, we had to sort out the demand side. We're kind of going back and forth and back and forth. Um, we had, uh, uh, you know, we had a lot of, obligations that were already defined by things like the host city contract, uh, the sponsor contracts, broadcaster contracts. So uh, many times those uh, were pretty specific about identifying what was needed from an accommodation perspective. Uh, But there were also other obligations that uh, were not necessarily defined by contracts that we also needed to fill, including the organizing committee's own needs. Uh, Some of the biggest functions um, as far as a comment from an accommodation perspective, were transport, uh, sport, and ceremonies. They they needed a lot of rooms. So we we had the demand for rooms, but we had to take this demand, which might uh, if if you have a, a request for hundred rooms, you have to kind of. Uh, peel it down a little bit more closely to determine um, uh, not just how many, but what type of rooms, uh, what preference did they have for the quality or location? Not everybody wants the top top hotel, the most expensive hotel. Sometimes what's more important to them is a particular location. And sometimes other groups had more specific needs that went down further than that. Uh, So then our challenge was to take the supply and demand, and then pair it up to, to match it together in a process that we call the allocation process. And um, the uh, and then that process was governed, uh, or at least had to be approved by the uh, International Olympic Committee, because not everybody was the same rank order in terms of who got to be allocated first, second, third, and and without belaboring the process, it, it, there were about three tiers. There was the Olympic family at the top tier uh, that included the IOC, the the sports federations, the NOCs, 
Uh, and then the broadcast and press and sponsors were a very large middle tier. Um, and then our own needs, that is the organizing committee's own needs for workforce contractors and others were, uh, were the third tier. We would take care of our guests before we took care of ourselves. So, um, and, and these, as I mentioned, not everybody necessarily wanted the best rooms or the best location. They, um, uh, the, the rank order guided us in at least the sequence that we considered the requests. So, um, uh, so we had to deal with their rank, their preference for location, their preference for quality, and then deal with that. that and and in frank, frankly, this was our biggest uh, nut, our biggest challenge throughout the uh, the whole time was putting this allocation puzzle together. Uh, with, where there was no possible way to make everybody happy. Uh, in fact, we resorted to the uh, that to the fact that we our goal was to make the fewest people unhappy, as opposed to uh, getting everybody happy. Um, because the people at the bottom, uh, the lower down you were in the rank order, the less likely you were to be happy. So we we just did our best to um, to try to create. Um, a program that uh, maximized happiness. And once we did the allocation, we issued um, allocation agreements that uh, obligated the user to um, legally obligated them to pay for the rooms. And it's, this was a point that um, we learned that the, the number of rooms that the groups requested and the number of groups rooms that they eventually signed for dropped by about 30% on the average. So for every 100 rooms they would only uh, allocated, they would only sign for 70 rooms. Um, and that shrunk the demand um, all the way through the process. And every time a group didn't sign for their rooms and left some left over, those were left over for the to the next tier. So um, the next tier of somebody down below. So it was a constantly evolving uh, allocation process that um, um, uh, that was quite a challenge. It was it was uh, our, our our toughest toughest uh, nut to crack. So, give me a sense of how long this allocation process takes. It sounds complicated, right? You've got all of these different client groups, and then you've got hundreds of uh, hotels and other accommodation with thousands of rooms of all different shapes and sizes and locations and quality and so on and so forth. It can't be easy. I mean, did it take the full five, six years to, to go through this whole process? It was most of those years. Yeah. So we're talking years as, as opposed to months or something that, um, we would, uh, we started distilling the demand we had the host city contract was available to us from the beginning and some of the other contracts weren't available from the beginning. So they were coming in, the new sponsors get signed up, new broadcaster finally gets the, the document uh, settled that uh, determines all the contractual obligations. So it was a building process. I guess by the time we were issuing allocation agreements, we were in the, um, I would say two to three year window because the, after this allocation process, we would still have to uh, collect money from the customer groups, uh, make the payments to the hotels and still, and then release any rooms that were left over. So that was kind of the last step in the process. And that took place, um, the payments started and releases started in the 18 months and less. Um, and, and in fact, that process was a very high stakes process. Um, uh, there was a lot of financial exposure uh, as we went through the, the sequence of this. Uh, in fact, we ended up processing over $80 million worth of hotel rooms in this. And, um, and so, uh, but fortunately we had a, a good solid process. We had a, a solid foundation of contracts and agreements, a computer system that spit out reports that made us smart and uh, and uh, able to make the decisions at the right time, a smart, capable team. Leah Madsen was kind of my key person on the systems. Um, 
and we're we pulled it off without losing money. So we're we're proud of having accomplished that, given the risks that or the vulnerability that that we had if if we didn't do it right. There's so much to unpack here. One thing that you did mention that I thought was interesting is the the demand side of this equation was evolving as new contracts were being finalized with new sponsors and and other stakeholders. At the same time, you also have an evolution on the supply side, right? Because new hotel inventory is being constructed and put onto the market. So what was the process that you undertook to get this new hotel inventory all buttoned up and signed off and made you make sure you got agreements with these new hotels that were coming online? Well, we were pursuing them uh, before, as soon as they became, as soon as we became aware of them. Um, and, and many times it was... Before they even started construction, we were uh, going after them. And sometimes uh, the, uh, the general public wouldn't even know that they were getting built. But we were oftentimes working with the hotel companies, either the, the brand chain or the ownership group that um, already on some of the other hotels that they owned or managed. So those relationships put us in a pretty good position to be on the front door uh, uh, of, of those hotels long before others became aware of them. And then we were able to get them in the, into the inventory in most cases and, um, uh, and then include them in the allocation. Even if they hadn't been completed uh, at the time that we were contracting them, we knew that uh, if we knew that they would be completed by game time, uh, we could count on them and allocate them. When uh, negotiating these accommodation agreements, you had been on the other side of the fence uh, at one point during the bid, right? Signing a contract as a as a as a hotel manager, you know, management of the hotel. Now you're on the other side of the fence and negotiating with them. What were some of the what were some of the challenges in negotiating the contracts and securing the rooms? The, basically, getting everybody on board, uh, getting uh, everybody to be confident that they were be that they would be treated fairly. That the hotel across the street that was of comparable quality, um, that was rough, roughly comparable, um, was getting no more, no less than they were. Um, and uh, in fact, I learned a lot about how. Um, and given that we were doing it after the fact, um, that we had to rely a lot on on trust of the hotels in our process um i i learned from this process about how to do it differently how to advise other cities in doing it differently and in fact the ioc now basically insists that the hotel contracts all be signed um, with a rate either determined or a formula determined prior to the games ever being awarded to a city. So that uh, the kind of question that you're asking, that there's no uncertainty to it. There's certainty in the, in the, uh, in the case of new cities getting the bid. But um, we did have to, we, we had the hotels that had been the um, uh, 6,000 rooms that were under contract. And it was based, uh, I think the for, there was a simple formula of uh, based on the preceding year's rate um, but it can get pretty complicated to because a hotel's rate is usually based on supply and demand. When the rate goes up, when the supply is limited, so um, um, there's not necessarily a fixed number that is that uh, becomes a benchmark to move from. Um, so it, it was a challenge. Uh, uh, we kept a fair system of of essentially premium hotels with premium quality, premium location, got the best rates. And the uh, hotels at the other end of the spectrum got lesser rates. And if a, a hotel tried to insist that they wanted a rate that was out of sync with that, we declined to work with them. And there were hotels that we declined to work with. So, um, and, and the, unfortunately, the hotels had to trust us in the system, and and we, we, um, I think we fulfilled their uh, their willingness to trust by maintaining a, a good fair system. But future cities, um, 
uh, will will need a different system, uh, or and they often do use different systems using um, a formula that uh, is more transparent to the entire hotel community. That's really, really interesting. Another thing that I want to come back to that you touched on was the technology. You need the, the help of some system to manage all of this inventory and allocating it and everything else. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on the system that you ended up using there at Salt Lake 2002? You're asking details that that I would rely on uh, Leah to tell you about if she was here. Um, but we did, uh, we, we started with a system... Um, I'm trying to remember the name. Semas, uh, I think, was the um, the uh, IT contractor that was providing VIK. His, I'm reaching back a bit now. Uh, but then we we had uh, particular modules of that system that were modified by um, uh, by some people that we were working with um, with uh, Byram in uh, Manchester, England, that helped to, to modify that system so it did exactly what we needed it to do, and and like I said, made us smart enough to make the decision. So that's the the high level. Um, we would need Leah to give you the details to to really answer your question, though. All right. Well, maybe we can get Leah on here. But, uh, <laughs> Leaving that aside, one thing that it points out, and you mentioned this earlier, you couldn't do all this work by yourself, right? You had to have a team to help you. So I'm curious about how you went about constructing your team, building your team, saying, okay, well, these are the various roles that I'm going to need people to play, and then finding the talent to fill those roles. Yeah, it, we we kind of looked at what we had to do and then assigned people to it. I mentioned earlier that... Uh, Rusty and Bob were assigned assigned to the uh, supply and demand side, um, and then they had um, uh, a few others underneath them. Um, but generally, I drew from the uh, hotel and hospitality community, mostly in Salt Lake. I, I we picked up Vanessa Lenahan uh, from uh, the Sydney Games, but most of them came out of the hotel hotel community in Salt Lake City, and. Um, uh, very smart, very capable, capable, talented team, um, uh, and uh, we we got Mario in to do the temporary housing. Uh, Laura Jones uh, did our um, uh, multiple projects, including the Paralympics. Uh, uh, we had all the supply demand going on, which was. Uh, kind of dictating everything we did, but we also had other responsibilities um, associated with what we were doing that still needed to be managed, including running conferences and test the accommodation portion of conferences and test events. Uh, we had hotel hotel training seminars that we uh, conducted to bring the hotels along along the way. We needed to manage the SLOC workforce um, reservation process. And, um, and then we had the Olympic Family Hotel that was a whole nother thing all by itself. Uh, the Soldier Hollow Alternate Housing Program, but the one exception to um, uh, we would we did accommodation for everybody but the Olympic Village, um, uh, and the Soldier Hollow Alternate Housing Program was a, an exception to that, where we took care of some athletes up at Soldier Hollow, and then the uh, International Dignitary Program. So all of these other things were necessary. And Laura Jones and Vanessa Lenahan kind of took care of most of those, uh, while Mario did the uh, ran the the hotels that we were running, and and uh, Bob and Rusty took care of their teams on the supply and demand side. But uh, bringing them all mostly from Salt Lake and mostly from the ho hotel community, um, we were all kind of in sync on on how to do what we needed to do. So I was really proud to have assembled a team like that. You know, on the on the supply side, you may be working directly with the hotel owners or operators, accommodation owners or operators. On the demand side, you may not be working directly with those stakeholders, right? You might be working through the functional areas that own those stakeholders with you know, Olympic Family Services, the Dignitary Services, the the media, you know, press operations folks, the uh, you know, broadcast, and all those other. Uh, you know, transport, you talked about, you know, the drivers and so on. You may be working with these various other functional areas. So 
What did you do to make sure that you could work really smoothly with all the different functional areas that were owning all of the stakeholders that you had to accommodate? That that's a good question, and that was also a challenge because they uh, they had to be um, uh, very familiar with their their constituency, and we would um, feed them with the questions that if they didn't know that they needed to to know, so that we could uh, come closer to be able uh, being able to allocate them rooms for their constituency. Um, especially for the SLOC users. Again, we were near the bottom of the, uh, um, at the bottom of the uh, priority list. So we had to um, equip them with what they, the questions they needed to ask. And then they would then in turn go back to their people and find out that they may need um, 50 bus drivers stationed in this location, but another 50 that location and they didn't have it so in that case they they had a a priority on probably location uh and slot generally didn't have um wasn't high enough in the rank order to get to get um uh, a priority on quality with the exception of um we also had to take care of the entertainers that were performing um at the um um at the ceremony, yeah, the, and well, the, the metals plaza, yeah, the metals plaza, right, right, right. Um, so all of those people needed accommodation too. So um, we had a stash of rooms that were higher in quality uh, that we needed to set aside for them. So um, uh, once uh, the the functional areas were great in in working with us, uh, once we equipped them with um, not just the number of rooms they needed, but the rest of the details that helped us get closer to making them happy, uh, never fully happy, but, uh, getting closer. That, so, uh, it was, it was good to work with them. So a couple of other questions that come to my mind as you're talking about this with accommodation. So number one is you've got responsibility for oversight of this accommodation for all of these stakeholder groups, but what about the spectators? The spectators was, um, we didn't, uh, Technically, we didn't have an obligation, and cities even now as they bid for the games don't have an obligation to set aside rooms for spectators, um, and we didn't either. However, if you don't provide some method of spectators getting accommodations, uh, you're going to hamstring your ticket sales. <laughs> so it's a, a vehicle to uh, to an end. So um, uh, we had three different uh, elements of our um, uh, of the way that we supported uh, accommodation for spectators to make sure that uh, we had sufficient availability uh, for spectators to get rooms. And and keep in mind when availability is already limited because. Um, the organic, or we we went up and bought all the rooms. So um, if if there aren't rooms available, how do you make rooms available? So uh, we had three different pieces of that. One of them was partnering with um, the um, uh, visitor information services. It's a, a coalition of tourism organizations that um, uh, that assembled for the games, and their inventory for the games was built up by rooms that we released at the end of our allocation process, extra rooms that we um, that didn't need after all. They were built up by some hotels that um, uh, never secured a group, held out from us, and never got anybody, and finally found an opportunity to get their rooms sold by put, making them available to spectators. Uh, some of those new builds, the new hotels that were built so late in the process without certainty that they would be done in time. I think they found uh, an avenue there. Um, and even some of our groups, the broadcasters, uh, sponsors that um, that ended up with extra rooms, uh, that became another avenue for them to liquidate their spare inventory and to make them available for spectators. So um, that was one piece of the spectator of of the um, of making of rooms available for spectators, the commercial lodging part. Then we had residential housing, what would today be Airbnb. Um, we had uh, Airbnb didn't exist at that time. Um, we uh, put out an RFP for uh, and Coldwell Banker responded to that and won that uh, process um, and, and developed a program. 
just like Airbnb for with private homes, uh, private homes and apartments. Uh, some where the owner stayed in the home, some where they, uh, uh, they vacated the home. And that was uh, that was a successful alternative. And then the, the third piece was a room and ticket packages. And that was um, actually run by Jet Set Sports. Um, they, uh, we allocated some rooms to them and they got some on their own. They put rooms with tickets. I mean, and they paid for the rights to this. They were, I think, an official supplier uh, or some category like that. Um, and, uh, so with the, all three of these, the commercial lodging, the residential lodging, the, um, room and ticket packages, we, we found a way in a tight market to make, uh, uh, rooms available for spectators so that they would buy tickets. Uh, and they did. And, and that turned out well. Well, I'm glad that it turned out well. One other question that I had. So that was question number one. And question number two is, did your responsibilities provide accommodation? Were they limited to games time? Or did you have any responsibilities to provide any accommodation before the games? I'm not talking about like a few days before, but for test events or IOC meetings or, you know, those kind of things. Or are you just really focused on games time accommodation? No, we, we supported the the different functions. There were other functions that actually had responsibility for planning those uh, the conferences and test events, uh, but we would support them. Um, and I think Laura did the primary part of this. We would support them by making arrangements for the lodging portion um, of of that event. So we wouldn't plan the whole event. We would just make sure that there was lodging for, for those. Um, and those were in the years before the games. Um, there were um, uh, immediately before the games, our part of our mission was that included roughly the two weeks prior to the games. I, I think technically it's uh, 14 days before, two days after uh, the uh, 14 days before opening ceremonies. Two days after closing ceremonies um, is the, uh, the the required coverage time, um, but those other events were all in the months and years prior to the games. Now, keep in mind that the supply demand issues didn't necessarily apply at that time. There wasn't the high demand limited supply, so those were more of uh, what a meeting planner or event planner would ordinarily do: block a room, block. Could be ten rooms, could be hundreds of rooms, um, and in, and in fact, the Paralympics actually, uh, even though it, it's it's a big event, it fit more into that mold as well. So that was an event that was after the Olympics, where once again the supply and demand issues weren't quite the criteria. Quite the criteria, uh, the Paralympics as an event uh, as an accommodation uh, um, requirement. We're only about 5% of the Olympics. Um, so uh, the dynamics associated with that were not at all there uh, compared to what uh, affected the Olympics. So we were able to contribute our support to that in a whole different manner um, that wasn't encumbered by uh, so, much of, so many of the processes that uh, encumbered the Olympic accommodation process. That's really interesting with the Paralympic Games. I'm curious, uh, as we talk about games time period, you mentioned it's 14 days before to two games after. So what was a day in the life of John Sindelar like during that games time period? I mean, were you running around like a chicken with your head cut off trying to resolve issues and all this kind of stuff? Or were things pretty settled and uh, you were able to enjoy the games a bit? Well, we, you know, the accommodation process is largely front loaded. That is we do our hard work in the years prior to the games. And once, once the games come, the ball is in the court of all the ho the 200 plus hotels that we secured and, and um, allocated and collected for and paid. And um, we did all the arrangements for them, but at that point, then it's their job to take care of, take care of our guests uh, of all the different customer groups. So, there's um, 
they did the hard work once it came came to games time. And we had our three temporary housing operations where we were actually in that mode as well uh, at games time. But but otherwise, we generally um, we maintained a hotline to uh, uh, to our both our hotels and our groups to troubleshoot. Um, we would try to solve any issues that came up with the slot workforce accommodation needs. Uh, anything, any problems that surfaced with those. We had a small stash of rooms that we would use to solve problems, accommodation problems. So um, we had those going, but we were able to lend uh, a handful of our team to other functions, other partner functions with who we had been working all along um, on the accommodation piece. For instance, the Olympic Family Hotel. Uh, we lent, um, I believe, um, uh, Vanessa over to to them, so uh, to uh, International Client Services. So she worked at the Olympic Family Hotel during the games. Um, and uh, uh, Laura Jones, I think, worked up at the Soldier Hollow Alternate Housing Program uh, because we had a whole set of rooms for them and that was a unique circumstance. And then I think one of our other staff worked on the uh, spectator accommodations program with Viz. So uh, we were able to lend some of our staff out to some of our partner functions uh, during the games. But uh, also during the games, um, uh, I, I saw what the sponsors and uh, marketing partners were doing and having waves of guests come in. And and that, to me, that sounded like a good idea. So I decided to, uh, my wife and I decided to do that my, uh, and my two kids. Um, so we had family and friends coming in just a, a couple, uh, one or two at a time for three or four days at a time. And and we were able to host them um, uh, during the games. And that that was some, that those were some fond memories also uh, on a personal basis during the games. Wow, that's awesome that you're able to spend that time with family during the games. Several of our guests were able to do similar things and have family and friends join them in mm-hmm. Salt Lake during yeah. games. And, and that made it a lot of fun. I do want to give you an opportunity because I know you spent a lot of time preparing for this. You've got notes and everything. And and I really appreciate that. You know, Before we kind of get to our wrap up point, I want to make sure that we've done your stories justice. So, John, did we... Do we leave anything out that was on your list to discuss? Well, just uh, I wanted to make a mention of the temporary housing that we did that I mentioned a couple of points that uh, we did that. We ran um, some housing for uh, for some guests and uh, Mario Gonzalez did this. Um, uh, it included uh, 300 apartments in the gateway. Uh, you know, in fact, in many Olympics, they build massive media villages of for thousands and thousands of people. Um, and we, we've considered um, different solutions to what we perceived as problems early in our process, but recognized we didn't have any massive shortfalls of rooms. Uh, we, there were a few gaps that we saw, and uh, we were able to fill those with, um, with some programs that also had a good legacy. So uh, the Northgate Apartments, uh, we had uh, just over 300 rooms in the Gateway area uh, using a $2 million federal grant um, that was assembled by a private developer. We operated it like a hotel during the games. Uh, It was occupied uh, by broadcasters. And then um, at least part of those units were designated for low-income tenants uh, after the games. Uh, And then we we operated... um, uh, a mobile home park motel, so to speak, uh, up by Soldier Hollow in Heber. Um, and that was uh, 40 four-bedroom manufactured homes during the games that, uh, again, another $2 million grant uh, that the Utah Housing Corporation secured uh, from the federal government. Um, we operated that motel during the games, and um, uh, and that was mostly uh, slock workforce. Um, and then those units were uh, picked up and moved uh, to uh, Southern Utah and uh, uh, assigned or made available to Native American families um, after the games. Um, uh, so those two had a had a neat legacy. Uh, the uh, the other piece that we did, we just operated kind of like a hostel up at Treasure Mountain Middle School in Park City uh, for for part of the Slock workforce, just about 150 beds. Uh, that one was a quick in during the games and quick out because school was going up until we took it over and it was it resumed right after we got out. So, uh, but it provided uh, some of our slot workforce uh, a quick uh, uh, 
a handy location considering all of the other limited accommodation up there and high demand for accommodation up there. We got them a good location uh, at least. This has been like going to accommodation games, accommodation in university, right? Like <laughs> I just feel like I attended the accommodation masterclass here uh, with John Sindelar, Professor John Sindelar. So this has been really, really cool. The games end, but life goes on. So I'm curious, what did you do after you, you spent a lot of time working on these uh, on these games here in Salt Lake? So what was next? What what was next in store for 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 you, John, as as you left the organizing committee and went on to do other things? Well, you know, my my wife and I had a decision to make. Uh, the as I mentioned, the kids were four years old and nine years old when uh, at games time, and we had actually been raising them with the help of live out nannies for a good part of their lives. And uh, my wife and I had both consuming careers. Uh, we had both been in the hotel business, and then. Then I worked for Slock. She had been in the hotel business. Then she worked for the Convention and Visitors Bureau. Um, but we, you know, we also recognize there are some drawbacks to depending on nannies to, to raise your kids. So, uh, so after the games, um, uh, I took over that job and uh, I, I became a stay-at-home dad. Um, and but parallel to that, uh, there was a kind of an unplanned um, consulting career that that got a start. Uh, it, wasn't part of our plan, but uh, during the games, um, I conducted some observer sessions for some of the uh, representatives from other Olympics and other events that uh, came to visit just like they did other functions and observed what um, what we did for accommodations during the games. Um, and then in the uh, spring of uh, that spring of 2002, right after the games, um, I did a project for the Athens Games, um, uh, Athens Summer Games of 2004, and then still yet that spring, I was part of the the um, uh, group of managers from SLOC that went to Torino as part of the Transfer of Knowledge program that typically happens after every Games where they share their knowledge uh, with uh, the host of the next uh, winter games in this case. Uh, so that was to Torino for their, uh, to help them with planning for 2006. And I found that I kind of liked doing that. And I found that I could actually, um, the analogy I use is kind of riding the Olympic wave. I figured I could ride it a little bit longer. And, and with the, um, the collective success that we had in hosting our games, I was also able to ride the reputation of the Salt Lake games because, um, Somebody coming from the Salt Lake Games was automatically um, attractive in terms of uh, two other cities because we had a reputation for knowing what we're doing. And one built collectively on all of the smart people uh, that you've had on your podcast and others that, that put on the game. So. Later that fall, I went to Beijing for a small accommodation project uh, as they planned 2008 did some other projects for Vancouver 2010 and Sochi 2014. And uh, soon the IOC actually asked me to write the first draft of the accommodation technical manual back at a time when they were developing technical manuals on all of the functions and all of the areas of the games. This was the uh, that manual that I didn't find on my desk when I first took the job uh, back in 1996. And so I was able to contribute to the uh, the first draft of of that manual, um, and then I connected with um, event knowledge event knowledge services, a consulting group that, uh, with a collection of functional experts from uh, uh, from around the world, advising bids. Um, and with them, I uh, worked on Rio 2016. That was one of the projects that uh, you and I worked on, um, and we won that one. And um, uh, in another foray outside of EKS, I got a chance to work on the accommodation portion of the 2018 FIFA World Cup uh, that we won for Russia. Um, but there were also some less successful bids that um, that uh, worked on, including Istanbul. Uh, these are ones that people have never heard of because they never happened. Uh, Istanbul for 2020, another one that you, you and I had a chance to work on. Um, Krakow's bid for 2022 and 
Budapest bid for 2024. So, um, and then more recently, I had a chance to work on behalf of the IOC, uh, providing support to the 2026 Winter Games cities. Um, and, and all of these were a combination of work at home and travel. So they weren't just, um, remember, I had that, uh, that nanny job I had. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I was able to, uh, to do a lot of this from home, but also get a chance to travel. So it was, uh, it was a it turned out to be a rewarding, fun experience that was not necessarily part of the uh, game plan. Wow. Well, it's been a lot of fun uh, seeing you every once in a while on projects here and there, John, and and I wish you the very best in retirement. As you kind of look back at your life and your career, I'm wondering if you can if you can share any advice. Well, for for me, uh, it would be a simple one. I I I was quite fortunate to to learn what it was like to to have a job that didn't so much feel like work. Uh, to have something, uh, you know, it was challenging and difficult at times. I'm, I don't want to oversimplify this, but uh, it was a fun and exciting job. Uh, I believed in the goals. Um, I was in sync with that. Uh, being it, that made it easier to work hard when it came time to work hard. Um, so I was pretty fortunate to have the stars align uh, with um, uh, with what I liked and what needed to happen. And, uh, and I guess I would advise, especially the younger listeners, uh, that, um, to seek some kind of position, some work, some purpose, uh, whether that's a product or a service, uh, uh, a cause, uh, an event, um, whatever, but, to to try to seek some alignment of, of what's important to you and, um, uh, such that, working in that area or in that field or for that product or service won't, won't feel like work. It'll, um, it'll just feel like part of you. So that would be my suggestion is if, if you're fortunate to be able to find that, and sometimes it might take getting close to it and maybe not finding the perfect alignment, but just getting a better alignment than, than you've had thus far, that would be my suggestion. Well, that's great advice. Uh, I, I totally accept that 100%. You know, to wrap us up, as you look back at your time at Slock, is there one memory that you would consider to be your goosebump moment? It didn't have to be during games time. It could have been at any point in time. It could even be after. But there's something that whenever you think about it, it just makes you feel really, really good inside. I would. I didn't have so much a goosebump moment, but um, I guess mine was more... Of a, of a life-changing six-year goosebump experience of, of working for Slock. It was certainly a fun and exciting job that I loved doing. It was the highlight of my career. Um, it, it incorporated a mission that I believed in. It called for a skill set that's happened to fit what I had to offer, but still challenged and stretched me. And um I was able to do it with a really great accommodation team and a, a great, uh, a broader slock team of people that were uh, uh, quite impressive to be associated with. Um, and, and I guess all of that set the stage for what happened after the games, uh, both my, uh, my opportunity to, to be a stay at home dad, uh, spending time with the kids, coaching soccer, being a volunteering at school uh, but at the same time as that, being being an international consultant, advising bid cities, traveling the world, um, that was a, a neat combination to put together, uh, both of which couldn't have happened without the support of a loving wife who had a more stable job than I had and more consistent income, but allowed me to, to do something like this she, and provided uh, her position also provided medical coverage. And oh, by the way, she watched the kids when I was traveling. So, um, so I was pretty fortunate to, to have this, this package in uh, post games and um, real grateful to Slock for providing the foundation to, to make that, to allow that to happen. Well, Slock uh, definitely provided that foundation for a lot of us that are in this space. And uh, I'm also very grateful to them. And I'm very grateful to you for coming on and sharing your stories. If people want to connect with you, they want to learn more about the 
the fun projects you're doing or your retirement, or they just want to swap Salt Lake 2002 stories, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Uh, probably by email. Um, uh, my Gmail address is johnjcindelar at gmail.com. So it's J-O-H-N-J-S-I-N-D-E-L-A-R at gmail.com. All right, John. Thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. John, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure for me, Christian. Thanks so so much. 